Hey firecrackers, it's Naomi and welcome to the firecracker department. Well, we are halfway through July. Can you believe it? What does that mean to you? Does that mean like you have that inner feeling of like, oh, school's coming back, even though I haven't been in school for ages. I still feel like September is like, school's back. I buy pencil crayons, I sharpen them, even though I'm like, oh, what am I doing with all these pencil crayons? What does summer mean to you? Are you catching up to make up for last year? Are you taking easy and easing back into the world? I mean, I'm I'm always kind of in a in a groove of busyness. And I don't say that, you know, like there's people that are like, oh, I'm so busy. Oh my gosh, I'm so busy. And there's sort of like a busy culture. But I love staying busy. I love staying busy within Firecracker Department because I feel like there's so much potential and we are creating and connecting to so many great people and there's always something to do. I also feel like there is time to stop. Uh, a friend of mine, and I'm gonna paraphrase the heck out of this, but they were telling me about um, this Monet quote, uh, that Monet was lying in his backyard in the sun and his neighbor leaned over the fence and said, oh, are you taking today off? And Monet was like, no, no, I'm working. And then a little while later, Monet had like his canvas out, he was painting and the neighbor was like, hey, are you, uh, you're working today? And he's like, no, no, I'm playing. And I just, I just love that. Like, I know it's important to keep moving forward and, you know, follow your goals and your dreams and get things done in that capacity. But I also think it's really important to stop and let things just sit for a while and simmer. When we had our mentorship department event a couple of weeks ago, uh, one of our mentors, Sarah Dollard, who writes for Doctor Who and Bridgerton, uh, she was talking about how important it is to sometimes not work. Like, don't get up every morning and write, 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 write. Sometimes get up in the morning and walk and let things just come to you and notice images and notice sounds and let your senses be woken up so you're not just constantly producing. And I absolutely love that. So when I say I'm really busy, I mean, sometimes really busy for me is planting a garden. And sometimes really busy for me is watching six episodes of Veep, which I did last night. So it depends on where you're at. And wherever you're at, that's okay. Speaking of where you're at, where are you at July 25th? Asking for a friend, and when I say a friend, I mean me. We are doing another script department reading on July 25th, and these events I love them. When we used to do them in person in Los Angeles and Toronto, they were such an important part of our community. And now that we're online, they still reverberate and are easily one of my favorite things that we get to do. Um, if you are a writer, and let's say you have a script that you're like, oh man, I would love to hear some of this out loud. We are always accepting script submissions, so submit. Get your script to us and let's read your script out loud. Farah Morani heads up the script department and she does an amazing job along with her team, Rebecca Marquardt, Lisa Lafferty, Tanu Ravi, Lauren Shell. That team kicks it up. So make sure you submit your script to Firecracker Script Department, spell the department fully, firecrackerscriptdepartment at gmail.com and we will get you into the mix. Now Sunday, July 25th, we'll feature a new script from a new voice and we'll have all those announcements from writer and genre to our cast reveals on our social media at Firecracker D-E-P-T. So stay tuned and get involved. Reach out. If you're an actor, let us know. Maybe we can get you in on the reading. If you're a writer, let us know. Maybe we can read your script. If you're an audience member, let us know. Come on in and have the discussion about the script. It's always, always invigorating and inspiring and it'll probably make you want to get some creative action going and write your own script. Our guest on the show this week is, ooh, I'm excited, is filmmaker, actor, and Firecracker core member, 
Anna Jane Edmonds, AKA AJ, AJ Edmonds. Now AJ, oh, I just love AJ so much. AJ is an emerging leader. I mean, it's a no brainer. You're gonna look back and be like, I remember listening to this podcast and now look where AJ is because AJ is a bona fide leader in the film industry, splitting her time between Toronto and Los Angeles, working as a producer, director, performer, idea creator, writer. She can do it all. She's taking every opportunity thrown her way to garner as much knowledge and experience as she can while developing and showcasing her own specific vision, her own eclectic breadth of experience and administrative prowess. Yeah, I said it, prowess. She can do it all. And not only that, she is a force. AJ is just this powerful and yet gentle. She's just a truly beautiful person. She's not only powerful because she has such intelligence behind her intention, but she does it with such grace and kindness that um, it's just, I'm just lucky. I'm just lucky to have her not only on the firecracker team, but as a friend. AJ's path has given her the opportunity to live in rural and medium-sized communities in Ontario and major urban centers in Toronto and LA, while also having a glimpse into the livelihood of post-conflict countries such as Bosnia-Herzegovina and Croatia, plus advancing economies in Europe, Ecuador, India, China, and Hong Kong. I mean, that's also definitely part of AJ's spark is that she's traveled so much, so, so she has this wealth of knowledge of, of humanity. And you can see with AJ, you know, she travels to build an even stronger understanding of how different cultures shape their media or perhaps vice versa. But she's just soaking things in wherever she goes and how to infuse what people's experiences are into her work. With over 10 years of experience in the entertainment and film industry as an actor, director, assistant director, production manager and producer, AJ is credited as a producer and associate producer on over 40 commercials, short films and features I mean, AJ was awarded the best Canadian feature for the film Poor Agnes at the 2017 Fantasia Film Festival and is one of the co-founders of the amazing Pocket Film School. Talk about being busy. She can just do it all. And I will also tell you this. She sings like an angel, like an angel. She's one of those people. There's a few people in my life when I have heard them sing, my whole body vibrates with joy. And AJ is one of those people and she's funny. I honestly cannot wait to see what happens with her comedy because she's funny and smart and kind and interesting and surprising and all the things that I love in comedy. So I am staying tuned. Also, I'm so loving the chats that I get to have with our core Firecracker members uh, because it's not only a chance for me to sort of dive deeper into our relationship, but it's a way of sharing this amazing team with you. And they are such beautiful artists in their own right. Not only are they working with Firecracker Department and building the Firecracker world in this beautiful, beautiful way, but they're also artists in their own right. And it's such a pleasure to find out the corners of their career and their lives and then to share it with you. Such a treat. Okay, here is my interview with award-winning filmmaker, actor, singer, unbelievable, top-notch human, and my dear friend, AJ Edmonds. So this, this is what I know of you. Well, no, this is a little bit of what I know of you is you had a really eclectic upbringing. Indeed. And when I say eclectic, you had like, uh, like your family was very non-traditional. And I wondered if you can talk a little bit about, uh, I guess the recipe of that upbringing that made AJ Edmonds. Sure. Well, a recipe suggests that it was on paper and someone followed it. Right. But I don't think that that is how it went. 
Um, so my parents are two very uh, fantastically interesting people that entered into their lives wanting to ensure that the impact they left behind uh, was a part of changing the world. And they both went in, like into, yeah, they, they both, whether they've said it out loud, they just embody this desire of, of having a legacy of impact behind them. So they both knew when they got married that they wanted to travel and they wanted to see the world and the work that they wanted to do would be international. Um, babies put a little bit of a dent in your travel schedule. Yeah, yeah, because they get bigger and you can't fit them into suitcases. Yeah, and like they tried, yeah. like I'm not so, so tall, so it feels like they kind of were like, if we keep her short, we'll just fold her in. Yeah. But um, so they they knew when when they got pregnant with me that it was not that I might be a little bit of a like a wet blanket to wait. Are you the oldest? So ready? Yeah. See, here's calm the, down. Sneak here's us. the riddle. Calm down. Here's the riddle. Yeah. Follow me down the path. I am biologically the firstborn of two. When I was eleven, I became the second of three. And then at 19, I became the second of four. So yes, I'm the firstborn um, to my parents. I was born in 1989 and my parents were just crisp young, youngins traveling around the world, but they both knew that they were gonna have full-time jobs and my mom was never um, going to commit to being a stay-at-home mom. So they uh, found a lady named Jenny who was a babysitter and she watched a couple of kids that um, my parents knew through their friends. And uh, Jenny said, sure, I'll babysit your newborn. So they actually hired Jenny, I think three or four months before I was born. Um, and I think Jenny thought it was gonna be like a part-time thing. And she'd just be like, yeah, don't let the kid die. Uh, I'm now 31, mm -hmm. almost 32, and she is still in my life. So Jenny and her husband and then their kids became sort of our side family. And um, my parents traveled a lot, but were exceptionally present. And then when I was three, I got a younger brother. And yeah, we grew up in Kingston, which I guess it always felt like a small town, but it isn't. Um, and we grew up in Kingston in, in the suburbs. There was a weird family in the suburbs that had a nanny. I used my babysitter is what I, I'll just call her my babysitter. The babysitter, we built an apartment in yeah. our basement because she was there every day anyways. And they were very much a part of our family. So we created a home within a home for them in our house. And my dad was working, I think in Brockville and my mom was working in post-conflict zones and conflict zones all throughout the nineties. Um, and while she was in a conflict zone in um, Kosovo, she was in Albania at one of the refugee camps, um, she met my sister who was a, my mother's translator. She was the English to right. Albanian translator. And yeah, I mean, you'll have to interview my mother to get that story because I wasn't there, but all That's I remember, good, yeah. good. Cause it's a, it's a great story, but all I remember is being 10, nine or 10. And my mom called from Albania. And she, all I remember her saying is, how would you like an older sister? I was like, yeah, sounds fun. And I'm not like 18 months later, Hana was moving in and I became a middle child uh, and I loved it. Okay. My, my younger Wait brother a was a little, yeah. Wait a second. Hit me. Let's just slow down a bit. Cause there's a lot going on there's in the Edmonds household. First mm -hmm. of all, uh, LJ is also part of the firecracker department core team and uh, she'll be coming up in a future episode. 
So stand by for the, the second part of the Edmonds story. But I, I wanna know like, so your folks, they traveled a lot, you were constantly, I mean, I know you have a passion for traveling as well, but how do you think that influenced you artistically? Because it feels like, unlike some families that you kind of grew up with a certainty where you're like, okay, this is how your life is gonna go. You're gonna stay in one place all the time. There's a, there's a familiarity, but you didn't have that. How do you think that influenced you as an artist? So we, we grew up in one house. So we did have the familiarity of there always being a home base, mm -hmm. but I think it's only been in the last couple years that I've seen my childhood really hitting me as an artist, because as a kid, you don't, you only mm -hmm. know what you know. And I traveled with my parents, with my mother specifically quite a lot. And so when I was seven, I was living in Bosnia like a year and a half or two years after the war had ended. And so I was the same age as a lot of the refugee kids that were born just before the war were displaced and now they were home. And so as a really little kid, I actually saw what community really looked like because community in, mm, right. in a post-war zone is very different than community in Kingston. And it's, you know, the respect for other people's safety was a huge thing. You know, like in Bosnia, I would walk to school by myself. Like I learned how to speak Bosnian. I mean, you're seven, you pick up words, you figure it out. You're like, that's what that means. And there you go. So, you know, I was translating for my mother. Can you still speak it? Not in the least. No, I had no reason. See, to I did not it. know that because at seven you pick up. Yeah, you pick up languages not, so, so quickly. Okay, go yeah. on. And so I was like, I would go to the corner store by myself. You know, and like my mom has some fun stories where she'll like, she'll say like, you're going for bread, this and this, and I'll come back with something that absolutely was none of those things, but I just used the language yeah. I knew. And they're like, here's some pears, you know, yeah. like, there you go. Right, 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 right. I said, you can't I toast said. pears, AJ, thanks for nothing. No, but I did my best. But you know, like I went to school there. Like I, I was walking yeah. blocks to go to school. I was like confident enough. And I, I mean, I don't think my mom was all that pleased about that, this, but like I got on a, a streetcar with a bunch of kids. I was like seven and I went to a different town and then yeah. I came home. And then she was like, uh, where have you been? And I'm like, just hopped over mm -hmm. a couple towns down. Whereas in Kingston, I couldn't do that. And I lived like down the street from my school. You know, like I, I was, I was never allowed to walk to school by myself until I was like 13. And so there was right. this very different sense of what it meant to be a part of a community that really sort of yeah. grounded itself in me when I was quite young. Right. So that was always important to you. But, and, but you said like, you're sort of seeing reflection of that upbringing now in your art that you're creating. How, how do you see it? I think so that sort of experience of traveling so much and the way I was, I think it came with a certain level of compassion through performance and ability to find an mm. authenticity in either characters or in, if I'm producing something like, because I've been to so many places around the world and I've, I've studied so many different cultures and, and I have a genuine curiosity for human to human interaction in all of its facets around the world it means that I've been shaped as a leader in a different way because I'm much more curious about how I mm -hmm. can lead a group for the group instead of lead to a group, if that makes mm. sense. And 
from an, from a performer's perspective, um, because I knew so much of the world and I had such a better sense of it's tough. It's tough to say. I I was ostracized from when I was six. Like I started yeah. getting bullied in first grade, and like it just right. never ended until I was about fifteen, and I just decided like whatever, I'll just remove myself from this situation. But, you know, there was a good 11 years in my formative years that I was ostracized and I couldn't figure out why. And it's only in reflection that I realized that I was trying to make Kingston feel like Bosnia. Right. Because I, yeah. over there, yeah. yeah, you care about everybody and you know, and you make sure everyone's okay and you check in and like you're present with people. And that's just not the way it is in the suburbs in Canada. No, I know. I was going to ask you actually, because when I was the same age as you, I lived in Geneva, Switzerland for a year and we had a sabbatical there. And I wondered if you had the same challenge, which was how did you integrate back to your community when you'd had these experiences in places like Bosnia? And then you go back to suburbia, Kingston, Ontario, and, you know, kids are on their scooters. It's a different it's a different world. Was that challenging for you? Yeah. And I, I don't think I really noticed I just could never figure out why people didn't like me and it just i couldn't and i couldn't really see it until i was in my yeah. 20s actually and i was talking to my my older sister who of course had an even more real experience of that when she grew up in albania in an environment you know not it's not the same as sarajevo but it she grew up in albania in a communal setting where and then she was at a refugee camp you know like her worldview is very different than where we grew up and so when she came, she felt yeah. exceptionally isolated because she couldn't communicate her life experience with anyone around her. And you can't yeah. fault, you can't fault kids for not knowing how to interact with someone that sees the world a bit differently. But I, I've always sort of taken a lot of issue with the lack of awareness of how to manage kids who don't see the world the way the other kids do. Yeah, yeah, you know? I get that. Yeah, because I wonder so looking at your your siblings then because I know this is where the um this is where the tv show comes when you start talking about your siblings mm -hmm. because it's so eclectic but um go through your siblings for me for sure so Matthew is my biological brother my bio bro he is okay just about Trademarked. yeah he's about three years younger than I am so he and I it was just him and I for uh seven years because I was on my own for three. Then he showed up, um, still around, amazingly. Won't go away, that one. Yeah, keep trying. <laughs> brothers are like that. Mm -hmm. Just keep circling the wagons. No, so Matt and I were together, uh, just the two of us, for seven years. And then Hannah joined us when I was 10 or 11. It's 2000, 2000 so I was uh, 11. And Matt was seven. Yeah. And then um, when I was 19, my parents had moved to a farmhouse out of Kingston. Um, my brother, Matthew was always drawn to more of a rural existence just by influence of my nanny and her husband who were both, you know, from small town, Ontario, super rural people themselves. So Matt got into woodworking and, and outdoorsy stuff because of them. And so he needed to go to a high school that wasn't inner city Kingston because it just did not fit his methods of learning. So mm. when they did that, uh, he lived there for about a year and then the spare room had an occupant one night because it was, I think, minus 40. And Matt ran into 
a buddy of his who he knew from high school who was sleeping in his car. He said, listen, I've got an extra room if you want to stay warm. And then uh, over the course of time, my mom and dad realized that Sam didn't seem to have anyone that was supporting him in an effective Mm -hmm. way. And that was 10 years ago. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So you've got this family of, of uh, different minded, different upbringings, and somehow you navigate your way through that. And we're like, I'm going to choose art as my Mm -hmm. platform for my voice. Tell me about that, that uh, journey. I think that somehow both of my parents are artists and they just, they just never talk about it. Um, Right. Because there is always this comedic conversation about how my, my dad worked in healthcare his whole life and he was a hospital administrator and then in admin and the business end of you know, stuff that makes my eyes glaze over because I don't understand. And then my mom, you know, is a PhD academic and has always been in this very academic forum. And my older sister is academic. Both of my younger brothers are tradesmen. And then I'm just sort of like, and I have yeah. always been like that. I was like yeah. that. Was, was that a rebellion? Was that rebellion to like the academia? No, I just never knew any different. Yeah. I just, that was who I was. And I, I, was I think five or six and I was at the kitchen table and I remember my my dad or my mom had circled in a newspaper back in the old days we used to get these things on Saturday mornings but my dad or my mom had circled piano lessons and it was at like some some lady's house I don't know two blocks away from us in the suburb in her basement she had a couple of keyboards in a circle and she was teaching piano and so I just sort of said yeah sure and I went and I started lessons with her and then somewhere in there, there was a conversation of, of singing came up and I don't recall her being a vocal coach. And so my parents did some research and they came across a woman named Nadia in Kingston. And I started, I transitioned into her and she taught me piano and I started singing and I think I was in my first musical when I was seven or eight. And that was that I've never known anything different in terms of just who I was. Like you were never like, I'm going to, I'm going to become a teacher. And then one day you were like, no, no, I have to go into the arts. It was always in performing. It was always in that world. I was always performing. There was like, there, I was either writing songs in my bedroom by myself. I was making up stories. I was writing stories down when I was really little. And yeah, I mean, I always thought I wanted to be a police officer at one point. I was really incensed that I wasn't tall enough to be a firefighter. I thought that was totally unfair. Um, you know, I thought I would model at one point because my grandmother measured me to be five, six and she was wrong. <laughs> right. But then what happened to those like ideas where they would like, how did you suddenly wake up one day and, and did you see something? Did you see a piece of art? Did you see a, a, a show that you went, Oh no, that's for me. So I was traveling with my mom and we went to the West end and saw Oliver. And I was seven, seven or eight. And when the intermission came up, it's like, it's a locked picture in my head because the intermission for Oliver is just as he's stolen something. And the last image you see is him reaching off stage and it's uh, the entire cast is running after him. And then it goes dark and the curtain comes down and that's intermission. And I wouldn't leave. Like mom was like, you got to go pee. This is the time that you leave. And just in case this is the I, I yeah. need to get out and like stretch your legs. And I was like, no, I can't because I don't want to break whatever this was. 
for me. Wow. Yeah. And after that, I just, I, I just sort of knew I loved it. I loved the idea of being on stage. I loved the way it made me feel. I loved sitting in a crowd of people who were all watching and engaging and feeling things about what they were seeing. And so, yeah, I mean, I always had lots of different, I still, to this day, I'm like, why aren't I a psychotherapist? You know, like every day I'm like, what else could I be doing with my life? But it's always just what I know, which is performing. Yeah. 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 That's so interesting because I think, um, I don't know if you went through this, but like you have to sort of play a game with yourself of like, what, what else can I do? Because performing isn't the easiest choice of journeys as far as careers go. And so then <laughs> I love that your choice is like, I think I could be a police officer, which would be way easier than being an actor. Yeah. Um, do you remember any of the songs that you um, wrote when you were no, a kid? No, I don't remember because I, I wasn't musically inclined. Like those piano lessons didn't last so long. Like I'm pretty sure okay. Nadia turned to my parents at one point and goes, she sings like an angel, but I can't teach her piano anymore. She's far too stubborn. I just didn't want to learn. Do you sing like an angel? You have like an entire gift as a singer and an actor. I, I, I remember hearing you for the first time and being like, what? She's a singer. You're not somebody who sings. You're actually a singer. Um, so you're going down the path of performing and then somewhere along the lines, you, you start realizing that you also have these talents as writer, producer, director. Do you remember that? Cause I, I don't feel like that's a, I don't think that's a veer off. Like, I don't think we're going down a path and you take a turn. I think it's like you take, you, you pick up extra things along your journey. Yeah. There were a couple of like formative moments as a teenager because I was always performing and every year I was in a musical and there was always something I was like I was a ballet dancer from when I was three until I was 21 like I I've I've always been performing in some capacity and then I went to Randolph so I actually um I got I got into York and thought I was going to go to York acting school and then my drama teacher Kelly Deer had said listen there's a program at the Randolph Academy why don't you just audition and see what happens? Just go and check. And I got there and it was fame. You walk into a church, there are people everywhere in their yeah. dance outfits and their costumes and they're singing in one hallway and there's dancers in another and like everybody's smiling and they're all a bit wired. And, and yeah. I auditioned and I went home and I was like, I can't go to York. I can't right. do four years and pretend that I'm an academic when all I want to be doing is wearing tights and singing my heart out. And it was much to the dismay of my dad at the time. Um, again, because he's a very practical person and he saw university as what you do. Um, but I stuck to my guns and I had uh, backup in my mom who was just yeah. like, if she wants to go, it's our life. But yeah, I'm so, that's so amazing. Cause, cause I think you could have gone down the road of academia. And I did eventually. Um, but at 17, which was how old I was when I graduated from high school, I just wanted to perform and I needed to get out of yeah. Kingston. I just had to yeah. break out of living in this town where, cause for all of high school, I was so mercilessly bullied in the elementary school I went to and it didn't what did really. They say? What, what, were the, what was their problem? Were they like, Oh, you're too pretty and smart. That kind of bullying. Yeah. yeah that it was, it was that. That's how bullies work. It's all compliments. Yeah. Um, and you just reject them. No. Yeah. Right. I mean, it, I, I was, I was bullied the same way every kid's bully story goes. I just was isolated because I didn't fit in and I didn't see the right. world the way they did. And quite frankly, my family didn't fit where we grew up. Right. There was nothing about 
the recipe that we had created that anyone in our neighborhood understood. And as a result, my mother was ostracized. And when right. parents treat other adults in a way that they treated my mother, the kids will do the same. Yeah, the totally. difference between Matthew and I was that my younger brother didn't give two fucks. He was like, oh, you don't like me? That's fine. That's one less person I have to remember a phone number for. You know? Right. right. Whereas like, I was like a bleeding heart and he was like, okay. Um, yeah. So, you know, I, I really had to get out of Kingston. I needed to just feel like I could figure out who I was. And mm -hmm. I, I went to Randolph and I had this very specific memory. Like I was so clear. I was going to Broadway. It was one, one thing, never doing anything else. And yeah. I was sitting in an acting class and the teacher said, if you have a plan B, you don't belong here. Right. And I haven't talked about my dad I've a heard lot, that one. but let me tell you, my father's okay. the man that shows up with the binder of plans, right? Like if I was right. going to go out for an evening, um, he would tell me all the ways my event I was going to might kill me. And then we would work back to why it would be fun. Okay. <laughs> right. Okay. You know? So like we, we had a bunch of plans. Like I had my first aid yeah. training when I was 10. You know, right. like oh. I understood alcohol poisoning very young because my dad would talk about it, you know? So like my, I always had and was trained to have a plan for a plan, but I do think about what else there is to do in life. Yeah. And yeah. like, I, I have to admit, I was a bit discouraged at, you know, we're in an environment filled with all these incredible teachers who are all incredible actors in their own right, but they're not working. Right. And they talk about how hard it is to not work. And I knew that because I worked a couple service jobs, I am too sarcastic for customer service. Okay. Yeah. I just am. Like I have a hard time. The customer's not right. And I'm a customer right. a lot and I know I'm not right, you know? And so I wasn't meant to work in an environment that I know a lot of performers have to rely on in order to be full-time actors. And a lot of that was running through my head. And yeah. so when it came to graduation, um, you know, my, my mom had floated, it was 2008. So the recession had just hit Toronto. Uh, we all saw theaters take a huge hit and you know, yeah. not, no one was hiring Canadian actors. And so she just sort of floated the idea of perhaps checking out university, like maybe diversifying your knowledge base and your skill set. Mm -hmm. And I was so defiant. I did it. I was like, fine, mm -hmm. I'll apply. And I'm not going back to Kingston. So it won't be, it won't be Queens. But I was like, you know, I applied to U of T and um, Western and I think Ryerson. And I really wanted to go to Western specifically because of the program. There was a media program that had a film section to yeah. it and a production section. And I was like, yeah, I so can you're staying on track. Well, kind of. I was like, I'm going to go to this. I think your mom was really smart to say, like, it's not, you're not a departure. It's a diversion, like, or a, like, you're adding to your life as opposed to departing from your dream. Yeah, you have to say that because you know she's going to listen to this. No, I, I believe that because I've always thought, like, as actors, you know, because I heard that same story. If you can think of a plan B, then you should be doing it. Or if you ever doubt acting, then you shouldn't do it. Like those kind of romantic big statements. And I think the opposite. I think have plans, but know what you want. Know your your core desire. Yeah. Um, definitely question what your journey is. But 
I think I think that's smart. So okay, is, so you applied to a bunch smart. of universities. Yeah, I mean, I like applied to a couple of universities, and I was like, I'm not going to get in one because sure, I was on the honor roll in high school, but that's because of the drama club. Let's be fair; I right. was really good at what I was good at, um, and I ended up getting into Western. <laughs> I just remember looking at my mother, being like, "I'm going to fail. I'm going to fail out of first semester." And then Are you're you happy like, now. Yeah, I'm like, I'm going to go, but I'm not very smart, and I'm not going to do a good job. And I'm going to fail. Right. She just went, okay, fail. If you fail, you have don't have time. to keep going. But you know, at least you're giving it a shot. And yeah. so the thing is, I didn't fail. Uh, I actually graduated with the gold medal in academics, which means I had the highest yep. grades in my entire program. Which... Of course you did. So, but that AJ, you have to know that that's so that looking back into yourself a little bit, like you in your mind were like, okay, you want me to go to university? I'll go to university, but I'm going to fail and I'm going to fail big time. But there must've been some part of you that were like, this feels good. Because if you had in your brain that you're going to fail, you really would have failed. Yeah. I mean, I just had no confidence <laughs> in myself from a smart, like I, I never, I never worried that I wasn't an intelligent person. Um, hmm. I just, it wasn't, I didn't, think I I never needed I never wanted to care about being academically intelligent that just wasn't it didn't strike me I didn't want my parents jobs I didn't want to be at a desk I didn't right. want what I envisioned going to university got you which was yeah. you know you go to school and you hope you get a job in the field but like none of the fields at university were going to lead me anywhere and so I picked a program right. that specifically had skill sets come out of it so media um MIT, Media Information and Techniculture, was a four-year program that was built to evaluate our environment from a technology perspective and a media perspective. And because I was interested in being in entertainment, I was like, well, this is perfect because then I can learn how to be a producer, which is not what I ended up doing. So they did have a program for production, but I was more intrigued by the theoretical basis of what media does to people. Right. So that's that cross. Like, I feel like we all have a balance between like intellectual and emotional, right? So you've got this emotional heart that sings like an angel. And then you've got this intellectual brain that combined, it's kind of magic in a, in a, in a producing, creating uh, platform. Yeah. In hindsight, they make really great pairings. Um, I spent most mm -hmm. of my university career trying to convince myself that I wasn't giving up on acting because when I left Randolph, and everyone else was going out into the performance environment. Right. Um, and I went straight and I mean like straight, like I graduated August 3rd and I moved to London mm -hmm. on August 10th and started school on August like wow. 20th or something. Like I had no, there but was nothing. Did that nothing. break your heart? Yeah, I was heartbroken because I just, I thought I was giving up on myself before I even tried. And so how did you rationalize that? Cause I don't think you're alone with these kind of journeys when people say like, I'm gonna choose this route and constantly long for the other route, whether it's arts or whether it's, I don't know, dental surgery, whatever you yeah. think your dreams are. I think I- How it, did you pursue it for four years? Well, I didn't end up doing four years. I did it in three. Um, right, because you're a smarty pants. Okay, so three years though, like- Well, no, it was actually, I did it, I did it in three because I kept telling myself that I was only doing this to 
give myself a little bit more dynamic to who I am, but I am still an actor and I still want to be an actor. And I, that's all I'm ever going to do. This is just, you know, I'm trying not to think about the fact that I'm going to be 23 when I graduate and that, you know, that's going to be old and I'm not going to get the ingenue roles. And that ate me alive. It ate me alive because Western yeah. doesn't have a drama program and they had a musical theater right. group, but I couldn't get into it. Like if the doors were closed, there was no way for yeah. me to get in and there never was, there was, I just couldn't figure out that community. And then all of a sudden I was sort of back in the community of people that used to pick on me as a kid. And so I isolated myself and the, the people I graduated with, with whom I'm still very good friends with are these four guys that were in my class. And they were the guys that also used to get beat up in elementary school for being different. And so, you know, like there was a sort of bond between five of us that seemed kind of peculiar because I was the only girl. Um, yeah. And so university was, was really hard because, well, a lot of things were actually going on when I went to university. So when I graduated from Randolph, um, that was 2009, it was the same year my parents broke up. And mm -hmm. when my parents split up, there was this sort of cascade of chaos that ensued afterwards mm -hmm. that you just can never prepare anyone for um and my my parents were very graceful in their breakup and they were honest and they they were human beings with my brother and i which was a blessing because they told us exactly what was happening and we were a part of it and though that was hard as because i was a kid still i was 19. um it meant that i started learning and seeing just how vulnerable adults are like all of a sudden my parents were people mm -hmm. You know, like right. they were, they were people in my eyes mm -hmm. and they weren't, they were flawed and, and that shifts things in the way you see the world. And then all of a sudden, you know, I'm at university, I'm in a new environment, you know, my family structure that I'd grown up with, which until I was 19, the only thing that made different being okay was the fact that I was from a very different family. Right. And it mm -hmm. worked and we managed it. My parents spent a lot of time apart, but they were an incredible team. And, and to this day are incredible parents to the mm -hmm. four of us. But when they split up, you know, I started learning that adults can bully just as easily as kids can. And I started seeing the world for how dark it can really get because all of a sudden the foundation that I had that said, it's okay to be different. Right changed and the people that were apart not just my parents but the periphery people that made it okay to be different were starting to identify that my difference was actually a huge flaw you know like one side was saying you're too much like your mother the other side was saying my gosh you know yeah that's a fa that's one of your father's traits and when you're still right. growing up trying to figure yourself out in an environment that you already don't know you know, I, my imposter syndrome at university was through the ceiling. It was like being in a, inside a um, blender. Yeah. And like, who, who do you reach out to? And, and so when I was 22, um, also compounded at the same time, I was uh, dating a soldier who had deployed to Afghanistan. The of course you were. My first oh my year God. of university. And so yeah. when he was in Afghanistan, he is actually part of, I think, one of the deadliest summers that Canada had in Afghanistan. And so that was just, you know, another part of what was going on. And when I, I think I had my very first, like full on 
life is just not like, I can't do this. Yep. Life is just yep. not, this isn't it. I can't do it. Um, I'm taking up space when other people need it. I don't belong here. Um, yeah. I was 21 and wow. I just remember, I think my poor mother, she just sort of called me and I can't remember exactly what, I don't even remember what she said. All I know is that within about five hours, I was in a psychotherapist's office being fully evaluated for um, clinical depression on the highest end. Like you should be medicated. You need, you know, all this stuff that it just happened really quickly because mm -hmm. something was happening. And, and my, I think at the time my parents were also in so much pain themselves. It was hard to really see what, what I was going through. And I, I couldn't articulate it either. Like I didn't know what was wrong. Like I had had my struggles all through high school. Like I was a troubled 14 year old, you know, like I was, yes. I was removed from my house and sent to my friend's grandparents' house because I couldn't articulate what was wrong with me, but I was being, you know, emotionally assaulted for, for like 10, almost 10 years at that point. So like, I couldn't, I was still learning the skill set to say, Hey, I really need help because this yeah. is what's going on. Yeah. Um, yeah, we don't have those skills. No, not taught, you know, that's something that it almost should be like a mental health class. Uh, they might even have those now, but like to be 21 and have the rug pulled out from under your feet with no form of having tools to deal with that kind of stuff. You're, you're lucky that you got, you found your way to help. Yeah. And let me tell you, she wasn't a whole lot of help. She, like comedically, I look back at that and I'm like, man, I walked into that office and she was trying to make me feel better because I was describing what was going on. And she goes, I've been there. And she described having postpartum Then she started telling me about her postpartum and yeah. no, I was like, Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry. Like, you know, how long <laughs> does it take for you to grow beyond that kind of depression? And she said 10 and, years. Oh my God. Thanks. Thanks for nothing. And I, I remember, gotta go. I remember sitting there and like, I've always had a bit of a dark humor side. Like I am sarcastic. And I remember sitting there going, I'm too sad to be sarcastic, but I feel like that's not something you tell someone having a nervous breakdown. Oh my God. Because that means, yeah. and funnily enough, I'm officially at the 10 year mark and I am on the other side of it. Yeah. You know, I mean, so yeah, you don't want to know wrong. that at the beginning. No, you don't want to know when you start climbing a hill that it's going to be like, this is going to be really hard and it's going to take you a hundred yeah. years to get up the hill. You want to be like, it's going to be fine. Just take one step in front of the other. Or just like everyone's journey is different. Cause that is the yeah. truth. Yeah. And, and so I, I, I made it through and I, you know, I, I had a lot, my, my parents were there along the way and, um, they were amazing, but you know, I also, they had their own stuff and, and it was sure. just a chaos of childhood. They're healing too. It's not like, I mean, yeah. gosh, you think about going through a breakup and then you see your kid that's suffering too. It's a really, it's a lot to, it's a lot to juggle. Do you remember um, any of the tools that kind of helped you find the light along the way? This was 10 years ago. No, I don't think I got the tools until about two years ago, to be honest. Two and a half yeah, when, and what years then? ago. Uh, I had, uh, I did it again. I burnt myself out to a point of uh, unable to function. Um, but you know, that came because there, there was also, a, while at university, one of the things I acknowledged after a while was that I had spent from when I was seven until I was 
19 playing a part of some sort. I was a performer. Mm -hmm. I was always reading a play. I was doing a monologue. I was performing as a character in a, in a show or like I was doing something that gave me a way to be somebody that I wasn't. I had never sat and just been myself. And there's a right. thing about going to university where you have to sit into who you are yeah. because it's just you and a set of books. Yeah. And I did not have the skill set to survive that originally. Yeah. And the, the people I had in place, so there was my boyfriend at the time, who of course was fighting a real war. And, you know, there were my parents who were there and my mother was very active. I really only graduated because I had her. Um, but, you know, like everyone in that journey, I didn't want to put too much on anybody. And so I was, I was isolating myself and it was just a spiral. Um, yeah. And all throughout that, I was justifying that going to university was um, going to help me as an actor. And I would say that to everybody all the time. Um, and I had a bunch of people I went to Randolph with who, you know, were kind of vocal about how they thought I was giving up too early. And I was, a, you know, but what a waste of going to, you know, what a waste of being the lead in the final musical if you're just going to go to university. Like you could have given it to someone else who could have been seen by somebody and like their career could have taken off and said, you absorbed that role and now you're not even doing it. So I spent years grappling with that. Mm -hmm. um, but I made it through, clearly, and mm -hmm. I ended up loving the majority of university, the classes that I took and the things that I learned. And yeah, then I came out and I just said, I, and I had been performing, I shouldn't say I was not not performing throughout those those three years, I was doing fringe festivals in the summer. And I was, okay. in, I was on a couple movie sets and I was volunteering at a film company. And so like, I was still surrounding myself with entertainment. I wouldn't say yeah. I was living a life because yeah. I wanted to be done university so quickly. I was taking summer school, which is a lot of work, <laughs> except it's- Yeah, but no wonder stuff. like the burnout factor of AJ Edmonds is like, it's a pretty clear recipe. If you want to talk recipes, like yeah, it feels like the, that you're you you surround yourself with what you're passionate about, and to the point that you're only single focused, and that's mm -hmm. not. I mean, that can't take you so, in the right place. Uh, two two and a half years ago, I decided that I just had to pull up my big girl socks and step into the version of the person I needed to be in order to survive. Mm -hmm. um, Could you and, see that you were going down the path again? Two and a half years oh, ago. Oh, I was gone. Like, I was down okay. the path. I was on the other side. I um. I was working in a in a really unhealthy environment. I was yeah. putting all of my energy into things that weren't necessarily serving me, and I wasn't living my life. I was not alive. I was a vessel turning over budgets, and like I wasn't performing, and there was no time, and I felt. I didn't want to say I was an actor because I wasn't acting and like it had been eight years of doing this. And, you know, I got into Los Angeles, or I got into UCLA. I went to LA for a while. Um, you know, I worked in, in an exclusively challenging environment out there. Mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. and so there's this block of 10 years or not even straight, um, six years where I just didn't stop. Right. And, yeah. and that's after three years of university. Yeah. 
So and could you not see yourself? Like, could you not? Because I, I kind of think like we, as we go through these kind of challenging things in our life, lives that you kind of build a, a tool belt of things. Like, you know, like when I've gone through depression, now I, I can see signs of it. So I don't go down that same rabbit hole. Could you see signs? And then what was the tipping point for you to get out of it? The hardest thing about being someone that lives with either hyper anxiety or depression or, you know, a, a mental health situation um, that is manageable, but still challenging is that no one ever tells you it never goes away. Right. Like I was a kid that struggled. I was a teenager that struggled. I was someone in my twenties. I'm like, I still have days where I'm shocked that I made it through my twenties and all I learned along the way was every time an episode hits, it's just adding, like, I just got to go back to my toolkit from the last one to figure out how I got out of mm -hmm. it. But you have to know that you're going to get through it. It's just each time I have any bout of whatever I'm facing, either there's shorter bouts now, or um, I know how to articulate what's happening mm -hmm. to the people around me. And to yourself, right? Like you can sort yeah. of step back and be like, oh, I'm you know, I need to take a break or I need to have some self-care time or whatever that means to you. And, and so what do you do now that helps you get back on track? Cause I do feel like knowing you and we've talked about your journey with acting and performing and that like, there seems to be this path where I'm like, I see you kind of going down the path, acting, performing, performing, performing and then something comes along and takes you off track. And then somehow you find your way back. And like right now, as of today, April, 2021, I feel like you kind of got the wheels back on track again in your performing passion. Yeah, I think this is the first time in, in my entire life where I have, you know, both feet on the ground. I have, mm. I'm not trying to make a plan. And mm -hmm. yes, that's because none of us can make any plans right now. We're just living each day, waiting to figure out, you know, when we'll be able to go back to whatever normal is. But for the first time in my entire life, I can say I'm doing the thing I promised myself I would do, which is I am mm -hmm. performing and I am able to sustain myself as a producer because I've done that for 10 years now and I have the skill set mm -hmm. to do it and it's not full time. You know, I'm also writing and that just came to me. I have to believe because I put the vibes out that that was something I wanted to get into and someone was listening. And so for the first time, I'm actually doing all the things that I wanted to be doing and feeling a level of confidence in it in myself and not looking for someone else to tell me that it's great. But I'm almost 32 mm -hmm. and I'm, I'm so young, but like the artist I am today is only because of everything that's happened in the last 10 years. Like the yeah. actor I was yeah. when I was 19, like there's no way that that kid could have sold emotion the way I can now could have really fallen into roles that are, are rounded. Um, and, and that's a huge thing that's taken this long to see, you know, like I was really angry at my mom for a couple of years for making me go to university. That was my framing of it. It was that because I went to university, I stole three years of my early twenties away from myself. And those were my performances. Right. And I'm right. never going to be a performer now because all the people you see that are successful have been doing it since they were 16. 
or seven, you know, their parents put them in it when they were kids. And, yeah. and that was my worldview for a while. And I was angry. I was really angry at the world. And the only coping mechanism I had was work. And then there was one day yeah. I was in South Africa working on, on a very challenging shoot in a very challenging environment that I, I'd put myself in. And the day before I came home, I decided I'd go for a run. And like, again, plans A through Z. Like I know I'm always, you know, I was ready. I knew where I was going. I had a plan. People knew where I was off to. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I had just stopped for like a second to try and find a meditative moment in the fact that I had, you know, applied for a government grant and I got it. I was in mm -hmm. a different country producing a really cool story, working with really, really interesting people. And yeah. I had lost the experience because I was in so much pain. And I was just working on fumes. In this one moment, I was like, this has been incredible. And you will remember this experience as a producer and use it on your resume. I was just like, this is, this will be really good. Mm -hmm. And then out of the corner yes. of my eye, uh, I saw a young gentleman running at me and in the process of about 15 seconds, uh, he got a hold of my phone that was down my shirt in my, and then in my ears and it was attached and it wouldn't let go. And I got dragged on my knees basically by my ears. And then when I, I couldn't get the phone out, he took a knife out. And I always say this because I really mean it. He was holding a very cool knife. Like I'm pretty sure it looked okay. homemade. And like, if I hadn't been in the middle of being uh, mugged, I would have wanted to look at it. Anyways, sure. so I, I, I got mugged in South Africa. Yeah. And in the way that all the stories go for the foreign girl hanging out, taking a second to herself, you know, by herself. Guard is down. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I am the statistic. And I stood up, I saw the knife and I ripped those headphones right out of that phone and got away with it. And, it, you know, I, I, there was someone behind me that I didn't know about. So I was being flanked. Right. Like they had a plan. Yeah. Yeah. I stood up, I walked away. Someone said, are you going to call the police? I went, why would I do that? Like, I'm never going to know who that was, where they've gone. That's a waste yeah. of energy. And of course, not fully acknowledging that there was a crowd of about six people that had just watched it happen. Right. And so I walked into a fish shop. I just said, hi, I've just been mugged and I need to use someone's cell phone. And this woman looked at me, like her eyes went wide and she frowned. And then I looked down and my hands were cut up. So I was bleeding. My knees had been torn apart and I was bleeding and I hadn't quite noticed. Yeah. No, you had adrenaline gone. And so I'm not bleeding all over this fish shop and this tiny little lady named Chanel in her little, cause they were working at a fish shop in her cap and her apron ushers me to the back office. Um, and, and she's trying to like wrap my band, like bandage me up. And I'm like trying to call my bank and I'm trying to call my mother. And I'm just like trying to tell someone, like I had to get a hold of my producing partner cause Oh, I needed help. Yeah. Um, yeah. And later on that evening, like I made it home. It's fine. Later on that evening, uh, one of my colleagues had made, made some sort of comment about something that I hadn't done correctly and about work or something. And I snapped and all I said to myself was I would rather be mugged every single day of my life then continue to work the way I'm working right now. Mm -hmm. And 
I was just like, I produced myself out of a very serious scenario. I didn't shed a single tear. I didn't panic. I was, I produced my way through it. And yet I could not, I was, I was dying on the inside. Yeah. And so, you know, I sort of came back from that and it took me, it took me about a year to really move on and, and really see what I had to do. Cause I was entrenched. I had a company. I, you know, I, I worked closely with people like very closely with a couple of people and, and I had to release relationships that I had thought I would have for a long time. And, and that comes with a yeah. lot of shame because you have to acknowledge in yourself that you've put yourself somewhere that is not working. And so, you know, that it's all part of growth and you're it, enmeshed. Yeah. And we live in a small environment, you know, the entertainment industry is very narrow. Yeah. And you, I mean, you find yourself, your people that you think are your people. And then when you wake up from something like that and experience like that, and you're like, Oh, wait a second, the people I thought, um, it's funny because I had that reflection the other day around firecracker department, because I think I started because I think I thought the people who were my people were my people. And then three years later, after uh, you and I kind of building this platform of firecrack department, I'm like, oh no, these are my people. And and you need different people at different phases of your life, you know, like, sure. And I think like I own every scenario I've ever been in good and bad because I am privileged mm-hmm. enough to have never been forced into something un- unwillingly, uh, forced into mm-hmm. a situation. There are things that have happened in my life that I didn't deserve and I didn't ask for, but the situation in which it happened, mm-hmm. I, I was there willingly. And yeah. I, I have to acknowledge that I made those choices. And, you know, it's through a lot of, you know, reflection and acknowledging and, and really listening to what I needed to, you know, grow into a person that I'm going to be excited to be. And I, I had a doctor say, <laughs> I watched, some people thought this movie was silly, but um, it, it's the Elton John movie, Rocket Man. Oh, Rocket Man, yes. Rocket Man <laughs> came out, and like, was I enticed by it being a musical? Yes. Was I jazzed because it's Elton John and I grew up on his music? A thousand percent. But a thousand percent. You know, the core of that story is just about a young boy who just wanted to be hugged by his parents. And that's mm-hmm. the core. And he was this incredible artist the whole time. Well, at his very core, what he needed was to feel like he could love who he was through the eyes of his parents. Well, I, I had I had said to to this doctor, I was like, you know, I watched that movie and it really struck a chord because I realized that this whole time I I've just been needing to give myself the chance to just be who I am and just like like me and like love me and, and acknowledge that, yeah, my parents splitting up and what ensued over the course of the 10 years afterwards. I was really affected by, and I own that. And, mm-hmm. and that was my journey. And, and I'm lucky that, you know, both of my parents are still here and, and I'm still very close with both of them. But at, at the end of the day, I'd said to her, I was like, you know, I had all this tr- these struggles, but at least I didn't, you know, turn to substance abuse in a way that was, is damaging to me. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. she went kind of quiet and she went, just because you don't have an alcoholism problem or you don't have a narcotics issue doesn't mean that you weren't using something else mm-hmm. to completely numb yourself away from what you were struggling with. And she said, don't you think that like work in this scenario might've been 
a little bit of an addiction that you use to avoid living your life? And I was like, uh, um, of course. Uh, but I now, so now that you're like, you're, you're trained at the, um, you're a master at the world of AJ, because now you see the signs of like not going down the same path. Like for you, what, what are the signs and how do you make sure that you can get back on track with this? Like not only with mental health, but also with the pursuit of your, your passion of performing. Uh, I, I've stopped putting the pressure on myself of, of wanting too much more than what I'm sitting in. Like, not that I don't dream of things, but I, for the first time and am happy to just be here mm. and you know, I'm not in survival mode anymore. I'm now living my life and that's a huge change for me. You know, I'm not afraid of putting my phone down. Like if you need me after 8 PM, it better be an emergency, you know, and I'm, I'm not afraid to put up boundaries anymore. I'm not afraid to say that crosses. I'm not working past this time. I'm not doing this. Where do you think you found that, those, that tool? Because I think people like what you're describing is I think a very relatable thing, which is mm -hmm. imbalance and um, ignoring signs when we are down the wrong path. So what's the tool that you use to teach yourself to put the phone down at eight o'clock and all those things that you've just said? Well, I have um, more than just me that I like to spend time with now, you know, I have Curtis. And he was a very new adventure for me. I'd only ever sort of been in uh, unhealthy relationships. Um, and so I met someone that just all of a sudden was very normal to what I needed in terms of normal. And so he created this balance that I'd never quite had. And it was just this like shocking acceptance for all of my like quirks and, and strangeness. And, mm -hmm. you know, you want to be an actor? That's fine. Okay. Yeah. You can do whatever you want. Like there's no, I'm not used to that. And I, not because I, I, I have never had supportive people, but I've just, it's just nothing's ever felt so normal. And there was a normalcy that came with meeting him and, and, you know, enjoying this wonderful partnership we have. And, and over time having the confidence of knowing that there's someone that just enjoys your presence for your presence and for nothing else really changes the way I was able to interact with myself. And mm -hmm. I think like the hardest part about, you know, being asked the question of like, what skills do you use and what do you put in place is everyone is different. Every single person needs a different something. For sure. You yeah. know, and I had to stop and I was really, really, really lucky that in 2017, my really close friend, Liz, brought me into the commercial world um, as a production manager. And the commercial world has a lot more money than what I was used to. And it was, I was able to do a couple commercials here and there while also taking two or three months off. And, and that is mm -hmm. a very privileged place to be that I was able to do that and healing through the ability to take a break. Um, mm -hmm. but, but yeah, I, I had to stop. I stopped yeah. everything. And I just, yeah, what does your, what does your time off look like AJ? Because I feel like, um, 
I feel like you are so driven. Yeah, I see your face. I think you're so driven that your time off is still somehow productive. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I like to work. I like being busy, um, but I also like watching movies. I like, you know, my mother makes for me because I don't read books enough. Every day she'll ask me, she's like, you read this book yet? I'm like, you gave me a 500-page book. Mom, I'm yeah. busy. She goes, I read Give it. me a couple of years. Yeah, like, I read it. I read it in two weeks. I'm like, that's cute. That's good for you. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I have, you know, we got, a, we got a dog that really has added a wonderful element because it forces me. Yeah. If they're real needy, like they got to go outside, which means you also Especially have to go that outside. One. Oh yeah. Walter. Needs, yeah. He's like demanding. He is not a, he's not a lab. He's not a like hang out on the couch for 14 hours. But you know, I, I, I've placed myself in a scenario where I, I have to go for walks in the morning. So I'm up and I'm out. I'm not even, I'm not even sure sometimes how I do it. I've just figured out that like, I'm not afraid to stop working at eight o'clock. I'm not afraid to start working at 3 p.m. on some days. Some days I'm like, I don't need this. And I also acknowledge that, you know, what we are living through right now are truly unprecedented times for everybody. Yeah. And we're exhausted. We're all emotionally yeah. exhausted by this. And I just, I really, my, my heart is starting to ache for, what we're going to be like when the pandemic is perhaps over but there there are a lot of people that are just surviving right now and surviving is surviving but when you relax that's when the trauma hits and what does the trauma yeah. of this look like in 10 years because yeah, it's going okay. to have an effect and so you know i i think right now if you're able to and i i know a lot of people aren't but if you can take if you can stop working one day at three if you can just take a day if it's a Saturday or a Sunday or whenever, and just, you know, shut down, whatever that means mm -hmm. to you, you know, find a reset. But you no, know, I, in order for me to be where I am right now, like my, my uh, friend Zach coined it the AJ factory reset. And in 2018, I just hit that little button that used to I be- I get that feeling. You know, the little red button that was like, nope. Yep. Go back. I totally relate to that. I always had the intention of like, I need to control alt delete this right now. Yeah. I need to just control alt delete and reset. But in that moment, when you do those resets, however long they need you. And like, don't get me wrong. When I said that I was going to walk away from my company and I was going to change my environment and I was going to move back to Los Angeles, I tell you, Curtis really screwed that up for me because I was on my way. And then I, I met him and I, was I like, know you met him like, the week before or something that's like that. Yeah, the week of. I, well, I didn't meet him. I met him on a, he was on a shoot I was on. Um, not because he's in film, but because he was there with a vehicle we were shooting. And yeah, I, he asked me to go on a date on like the 20th of December and I was moving on the 23rd. I was like, sure, he's Fantastic. cute, fine, you know? But um, yeah. I thought that this time I needed for myself was going to be three or four months of not working and not doing anything. And it's... It's been almost, it's been two and a half years. Yeah. And yeah, that's why we just have this sort of sense that everything has to happen yesterday. And if it didn't happen yesterday, it's never going to happen. And that's sort of, you know, I really resent the five-year plans. I resent the 10-year plans. I resent any plans right now because I think being able to just sit and acknowledge where you are and embrace where you mm -hmm. are 
is probably the most powerful thing you can do. And then that ricochets on the people around you. Mm-hmm. So, I love that. Yeah. I love that. I, I love what you said too about like stopping. Cause I think, I don't think we do that very often. You know, I think uh, there was another podcast interview where somebody said, have you ever, like, when's the last time you did nothing? Like you did nothing. And I think we're so trained to always be producing, always be hustling that whether you can take a day to yourself, whether it's a weekend, whether it's an hour, it's, um, I think that's a really good piece of advice. Yeah. And really in that time, you learn who you really want to be. Because in the last two and a half years, I've thought of it all. I've thought about going back to school to be a therapist. I've thought about going back to school to be a lawyer. I have, you know, thought about getting my PhD in in media impact. And like, I've gone through all of it. I've talked about all of it. I've thought, I've looked up everything. And at the end of the day, all I want to do is perform and be in the arts. And that has been like that since I was three. Sorry, you're going to have to stay here. Sorry. <laughs> AJ, I, we're going to talk more because we have probably other meetings coming up this yeah. week, but I also just, I love having this time with you and I so miss when we could do this in person, but um, I'll take it. I'll take like, just, I just love finding out like the corners of your, your life a little bit more. And I can't wait to find even, we'll do like a follow-up Yeah. for all the core interviews. I thought it would be kind of interesting to flip the tables and have the guest ask me a question. So I am open. Okay. Uh, favorite food? <laughs> um, noodles. Weirdest place you've ever been? Um, oh, maybe the Dead Sea in Israel. Okay. Uh, worst airplane trip. Where were you going? Oh, yeah. So we were going to South Africa. Here we go. Uh, Matt and I, I was shooting a commercial in, in Cape Town and then Matt came and joined me and we thought we'll go on an adventure and go to Kruger Park. But you had to take, you had to rent a car to the airplane, then the plane to uh, Johannesburg. And then the planes are like uh, like flying buses. They're, you have to pay extra if you want a seatbelt. So we got on this plane, it was real rickety and it was quite turbulent. It was not a very, didn't feel safe. And it was getting a little bit turbulent. And Matt chose that moment to order a hot cup of coffee, which is just his, just his magic. It's just his sense and of so humor. The and also, yeah, the stewardess came and brought it to him. Also a surprise. And now this is going to be hard to explain on podcast, but he took it in his hand and I was sitting next to him and he kind of rolled with the turbulence up and down. And then honest to God, it was like he literally just threw it right in my face. I had coffee all over. There was coffee on the ceiling. And then he, I looked over to him, coffee dripping from my cheeks. And he was like, oh, I got a little bit on my shirt. And I was like, look at my face. Look at my face. It was literally dripping. Well, I'm so sure you saw all the animals at Kruger Park. because They all came out to find that caffeine hit. That's right. <laughs> yes. All right. Wrap up questions for me. Ready? Hit me. Fill in the blank. To me, a firecracker is? A person that cares about the people around them. Oh, AJ. What do you want to be best known for in your life? Um, making people f feel welcome and smiling. What's something that people don't know about you? Ooh, uh, my favorite color is pink. That usually shocks people. That does. That's a shocker. Yeah. Um, what's your best mistake? 
<gasps> going to university. Something that you know you have to do, but you haven't done yet. Something I know I have to do that I haven't done yet. I would like to have children. I don't have to do it, but I feel it, you know, I'd like to. Okay. Sounds fun. Yeah. Um, and who is a firecracker in your world? <laughs> My mom. Oh, she really is. She really yeah. is. Um, and a piece of advice you would have given to your younger AJ? Uh, just stop and take a breath. I love it. I love you. I just love oh, it. I'm so lucky. I'm just so lucky to have you as a friend and as a team partner in every single way. It's just extraordinary that our paths have crossed. I agree. I agree. Thank you so much. I just want to thank AJ, not only for being part of this week's podcast episode, but for all the work she's doing with Firecracker Department and just making a difference. Because of people like AJ within the core group, the Firecracker Department is taking flight. That's all there is to it. We couldn't do it without folks like AJ and her smarts and her heart is the reason why we are where we are today. And we are going to be where we're going because, gosh, you know that with somebody like AJ in your corner, you're you're going somewhere. I loved hearing so much about her story and learning more about AJ and just deepening our own friendship. It was a treat. I mean, so many things I didn't even know too, which I loved. I love when you're like friends for a long time and then you're like, what? You traveled the world? What? You do this? I didn't know. It's like when she sang for the first time and she sent me like a little clip from one of her singing classes and I was like, I had no idea. So it's such a, it's such a treat for me too. Now you can follow AJ on Instagram and Twitter at A to the J-E. That's the letter A, the word to, the, and the letters J-E. A to the J-E. Makes sense. Link in our show notes, of course. And also don't forget to follow Pocket Film School on Instagram at pocket.film.school or on their website pocketfilmschool.io. The mission of Pocket Film School is to take a complex topic like filmmaking and break it down into its basic parts. From there, they make every single course just easy, easy to ingest by limiting most episode lengths to eight minutes or less. Yeah, just eight minutes. I can take eight minutes. AJ is one of the creators of this school and instructors on the platform. They have hundreds of lessons available for truly amazing prices. So go check them out, pocketfilmschool.io for more AJ in your life because who, who doesn't need more AJ in their life, right? As someone with a lot of AJ in my life, I just know I can always take more. And I love her energy so much. So whenever I get a chance to hang out with her, or even when we text, it uh, makes my day. I can't wait to share more of these core Firecracker chats with you and find out more about the folks that are building Firecracker Department. Because if you're listening to this, if it's for the first time, welcome. If it's for a long time, I'm so glad you're back. But you know Firecracker Department is something special. And you also know it's not done without a heck of a lot of work. And that's from all the different core members. And uh, without each and every one of them, this wouldn't be possible. So, you know, if you're noodling around on social media, shout out some of the Firecracker core members because they're making a difference. Thanks so much for joining me today, joining us, joining this chat. I hope you're enjoying the weather wherever you are and whatever the weather is. It's summertime somewhere and I hope you're soaking it in. See you next week. Winnie Wong is our Firecracker head producer. Follow her at wonder underscore Wong on Instagram and wonder underscore Wong 8 on Twitter. Sydney Nielsen is our co-producer and head editor. You can follow them at Sydney underscore Nielsen. Sydney, like Australia. Nielsen, like milk. 
This episode was edited by Jennifer Rowley. The rest of the team comes at you from Toronto, Los Angeles, Austin, London, Dubai, and truly from all over the world. Big shout out to our latest and greatest student embers. That's Aria Forrest and Nancy Ding. My gosh, we are lucky to have these two firecrackers on board to do some work experience with us. And if you know any student that's looking for work experience, give us a shout. Get into the full Firecracker Department core team at firecrackerdepartment.com slash about because we're always updating and we're always growing. Stay tuned to our newsletter for advanced updates on our monthly meditations, upcoming mentorship workshops, live script department readings, festival partnerships, weekly writing workouts, and dates for 2021, and so much more. There's lots going on in Firecracker Department. Now, whether you're a first-time or a long-time listener to Firecracker Department, we always, always want to hear from you. We love hearing what quotes, the specifics, the nuances of things that stuck with you. We mean it. We really do. And we respond to every single thing that comes our way. If it gives your brain goosebumps or it piques your curiosity or makes you want to stop and write something down, send it back to us or our firecracker guest or both. I mean, everybody likes to know that when they put something out into the world that it resonates. And if it sparks something in you, use that creativity to take some creative action. Share it because it just reverberates, you know? If you see somebody being creative, that might spark somebody else's creativity. So pay it forward. Thanks also to Jeff Malutinovic and Igor Korea for our theme music. And thanks to you. Yeah, you. Sitting there, driving there, walking there, working out there, and taking time to listen. We know there's a lot of options out there and we really appreciate you choosing us. We hope to see you at maybe brunch, maybe the writing workshop. And until next time, thank you for listening to the Firecracker Department. We'll see you next time.